Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, June the 8th starts now. On today's show, making his triumphant return, Ben welcomes educator, inner city youth advocate, activist, and author, Lance Williams. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. And if you like columns from Ben Jarofsky, just head on over there, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A. B is in victory, SKY. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this, wow, Lincoln Yards to Teachers Help Thursday. That's a hell of a title to put in a caption. But uh, wow. Before I bring on my distinguished guest to have a conversation about absolutely nothing directly related to what I'm about to say now, let me say this. I saw, uh, it was the headline I saw on Cranes. I think it was yesterday. And a shout out, big time shout out uh, to Cranes real estate reporter, Danny Ecker, uh, for doing an outstanding job of consolidating the story into something that makes sense. And uh, since I saw it, that story has been sent to me by so many of my listeners because I inhabit a world full of, and I'm just going to say this, I think my listeners are some of the smartest people in the city of Chicago. Always make fun of people in the city of Chicago for being so clueless, and you are so clueless, Chicago. But my little corner, I like to stay, is like people who pay attention to stuff. All right, let me explain what's going down. So it was, what, how many years ago when Rom left? Four years ago, Mayor Rom, last city council meeting. Got the city council in one of its dumbest moves of the 21st century. And that's saying a lot, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) One of the dumbest moves of the 21st century by the Chicago City Council. If you had a Mount Rushmore, remember there's four things on Mount Rushmore, four presidents on Mount Rushmore. If you had a Mount Rushmore, the four dumbest things the city council has done in the 21st century, you'd have parking meter deal, you'd have Olympics, and you would have this. And then I don't know what the fourth is. And this is the $1.3 billion, with a B, TIF handout they gave to Sterling Bay to build something called Lincoln Yards, gentrify an already gentrifying neighborhood that was gentrified on its own, without the handout. Fine, thank you. $1.3 billion, which could have gone to the schools, which could have gone to the parks, which could have gone to pensions. So we gave that money, $1.3 billion, to Lincoln Yards, to build Lincoln Yards. And now here we are, four years later, Danny Ecker report, reports in Cranes that Lincoln Yards, the project isn't working. Apparently, they didn't take into consideration we'd have a pandemic. They didn't take into consideration the fact that workers would not be working at the office and that there would not be the need the, for 
office space that they thought there would be. By the way, I didn't think there was going to be a need for it anyway. This is one of the great jokes of all time. Like, I'd be driving around the north side of Chicago in and around where uh, Lincoln Yards is. All I saw were empty storefronts. My wife and I would be talking to each other like, they can't even fill these storefronts. How are they going to fill up Lincoln Yards? Why are we spending so much money? (laughs) What a city. But here's the deal. And this is how you brainwash Chicago. You think that if a rich person comes to the mayor and the mayor says, we got a deal, a public-private partnership, you think it's automatically a good idea because you're brainwashed. You're like, well, they must be smart because they're rich. How many people you know out there said, well, I voted for Donald Trump. Because he's a successful businessman. One, he's not a successful businessman. And two, being a successful businessman is not necessarily correlated to being a great president, as we discussed. But so many Americans are just like starstruck by wealth. And so many of you little Chicagoans out there are like, well, Ben, they must be really smart. And they must know what they're doing because they're rich. So let's give them $1.3 billion to be even richer. And that last meeting, Mayor Rahm gathered all those aldermen, got a pretty strong vote to turn over that money. And you know what's interesting? Some of those same aldermen two weeks ago who voted for that $1.3 billion handoff to the rich guys to gentrify an already gentrifying neighborhood were the ones who said, we can't afford to vote for money for asylum seekers. They all had their reasons too. Napolitano, David Moore, Anthony Beale, Raylo, all of you all had different reasons for being against the asylum seekers getting their money. But you all lined up for the 1.3, a billion with a B for Lincoln Yards. Well, now it turns out that the deal's not quite what they said it was going to be. And apparently all those smart guys are not as smart as they thought they were. And, of course, Mayor Rob's nowhere to be found. <laughs> he, he, he's in Japan. I'm sure if they call him for comment on this, they won't be able to get him. You know how Rob hides when there's something critical being written about him, but comes forward when there's something tough piece written about him. Anyway, so they're so desperate, the developers of Lincoln Yards, for money to fortify their project. They have turned to the Chicago Teachers Union pension. Can you believe this? I'm like, back in 2019, was it 2019? Yeah, lost track of time. But Mayor Rahm got the city council to make that vote. The teachers union was against it. The teachers union was against They had marches at Lincoln Yards to sort of put a spotlight on what a waste of money this was. Since then, Lincoln Yards are so struck, struggling so much, they're going to the pension, the pension fund and go, hey, teachers, I know we took the money from you in the first place, but please bail us out. Give us some of your pension money. My, my distinguished guest here, I believe, is a professor here at, uh, at Northeastern. They're taking your pension money, too, someday to fortify this deal. <laughs> my distinguished guest wrote about a credible book about gangsters and crime and politics in Chicago. And the parade goes on. 
still going on. So they're going to the teachers union. Please, teachers, I know we took the money from you in the first place. I know we said that we were so smart and you were so dumb, but please bail us out. The teachers, like, listen to their appeal. I, I'd urge everybody, go just go check out the Danny Ecker article. It got all the details in there. But the teachers listened to the appeal, and now they're going to, like, I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to make a decision. They're going to go into their room and look at the money. And You know what's so funny? The powers that be in this city will, like, resist any attempt, any proposal or idea to fortify the public schools. They'll say, oh, we need choice. Let's close public schools and replace them with charters. Or there's too many public schools. Let's just close them. Or these teachers are too unruly uh, and they're undisciplined and they're selfish and they're lazy. And we need to get rid of unions so that we can have good teachers. That's what they say. But as soon as they get in trouble, hey, teachers, bail us out, please. Oh, this is just me talking to the teachers union. I hope you guys have enough sense not to kick in on this thing. You know, I know you're going to go in your back rooms and take a look at the, do your due diligence and see, oh, maybe we can make some money off of this deal. Oh, Lord. And you know what the funny thing is? It's a funny thing. Amisha Patel and the activists of Chicago, right after this deal went down, went to court. They went to court to try to, uh, uh, get a judge to overturn Lincoln Yard's deal. Said it wasn't eligible for the TIF money in the first place. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot stepped in, got sent the city lawyers in to fight them, and they got found some judge to rule with the city. You know, a judge is not going to rule against a multi-billion dollar deal. And uh, so Lincoln Yard's chug-a-lugged along. Now the funny thing is the, the developers are complaining about Lori Lightfoot. They're like, oh, she wasn't, she didn't help us enough. I'm like, it's not her fault. We had the pandemic and people don't go to offices anymore. Why are you blaming her? And by the way, she went to court to save your little deal. And in retrospect, it looks like y'all been better off if the judge had ruled with Amisha Patel. All right. Enough on that for the moment. I'll be talking about that more in the coming weeks. Lance Williams uh, is my guest. And um, Lance is a professor of urban uh, community studies in Chicago and he's the author of a book that I have been obsessing over uh, for quite a while now in, in sort of private talking to my friends. Go, you got to read this book, man. You got to read this book. The name of the book is King David and Boston Daily and it tells the story of black disciples and Mayor Daly set in roughly the 50s, 60s and 70s. And it's the original Mayor Daly, not the baby Daly that most of you youngsters know about, Richard J. Daly, the daddy. Lance Williams, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. I really appreciate the invitation. Fascinating book. I've been talking about it to uh, everybody I know in my uh, little universe. Tells a story that uh, people should understand and realize. And I'll just as a uh, sort of overview say this. I always say in the show that Chicago has been a very violent city, a very crime-ridden city, a city with great political corruption. So it's like, to me, it's no great surprise that we're always struggling with issues of crime and corruption in the city of Chicago. It's like in the fabric of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and man, does your book bring that out. 
by going back to the early part of the 20th century to talk about Mayor Richard J. Daly's connection to crime <laughs> and taking it all the way in uh, up to like 1980s or so. Um, so I'll just start with like a most general basic question. Why, in your humble opinion, do you think Chicago has such a love for crime, criminal, and gangsters? Wow, that's a, that's a great question, Ben. Uh, and I think you just you just hit on it. Um, you know, the fabric of Chicago. Chicago was, you know, it, in its early formations, was always kind of like this outpost, a place where you know, if you were moving from the east to the west, it was kind of the one of the the early places that you can come. Uh, and engage in, in uh, vice, you know, prostitution, gambling, uh, 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 you know, those are those are those are the main main uh, major vice uh, industries uh, at the early formation of Chicago. So I think a lot of people came to Chicago, migrated to Chicago because they were interested in uh, being able to do things. Um, that were not tolerated in some of the other uh, Eastern cities. So Chicago attracted that kind of energy. And I think it's a part of the DNA of this city. Wow. Uh, also part of the DNA of this city uh, is racism. Uh, uh, white fear and white hatred toward black people. Let's just call it for what it is, Lance Williams. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading your book and your book gets into uh, the Chicago race riot of 1919 and the white uh, fear and hatred of black people that already existed. And my question to you is this, white people didn't even know anything about black people. I mean, they had never even met any black people and they already hated them. And you're talking about white people in Chicago who lived here in the early part of the 20th century, Lance, who like had just arrived in this country Anyway, from Ireland or Italy or Eastern Europe, wherever. So another large general question. Why is it that white people have such a fear and hatred of black people, even when they didn't even know any black people? Yeah, that's that's that, you know, it's an that's an interesting point. So in Chicago, the I think a, a lot of the tension and the violence that was um, that was uh, perpetrated on black people when when the majority of black people migrated began migrating to Chicago uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, most people say around 1916 is when you you saw this this influx of African Americans coming from the South, uh, coming off of the. Um, the, the plantations and uh, coming out of sharecropping, trying to find a, a better way of life. What what happened is, and and we 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 talk about this migration as if it was a natural thing, and really it wasn't. It was it was actually orchestrated. It was orchestrated, uh, and there were some things going on in 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 America, particularly in urban cities um, or urban centers at the time. If you recall, that was around the time of uh, World War One. And a lot of the, the 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 recent immigrants, the Irish and, and others, were shipped off to fight in the war. But because Chicago was a center of um, 
uh, the beef and the meat industry back of the yards, a lot of those um, <clears throat> young Irish men who were sent off to the war also worked in the stockyards. So when they got sent off, there was no one to do that most arduous, most difficult work. And so black people were recruited, black men were recruited from the South to take those jobs. Well, what happens when those young Irish men come back home and they see these black dudes in their jobs? So that created immediate tension. Uh, not only that, um, there was a neighborhood that we now refer to as Bronzeville, which was right next. It shared a, a border with uh, Bridgeport where the Irish lived and um, African-Americans were kind of segregated into that area. So it was just some 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 um, natural kind of uh, lines, territories that were crossed, jobs that were taken, and it created this tensions. African-Americans didn't really know this was going on at the time. They thought they were coming here for a better life. But basically, some uh, African-American leaders in positions of influence enticed them to come here specifically to get these jobs. Remember, the the, the mayor during the time uh, was a Republican. African-Americans were Republicans at the time. The Irish were Democrats. So you also had that tension as well. Um, and, you know, it just it just elevated and escalated quickly into those 1919 riots that you mentioned. And we haven't recovered from that yet. You know, that that riot has extended all the way to the 2000s. Absolutely. And so some yeah. of the attitudes are so fortified in Chicago. Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, when when I first moved here in uh, the 80s, uh, Lance, and I was just began exploring these things, uh, a lot of older white residents or people who lived there their whole lives go, Ben, you don't understand. This is how it is in Chicago. Uh, my, our neighborhood was used to be a safe place. And then black people moved in and then became a dangerous place. And that's that's it's not that we were prejudiced. It's just that this we experience this. And I'm like, it wasn't the case. <laughs> it seemed like you were prejudiced before you even met a black guy. You know, yeah. I mean, the fears that are expressed by white people about what black people will do to them. Yeah. You know, and the threat they will be to white women in particular. This is you had never even met a black person okay <laughs> all right now i'll i'll concede your point about taking jobs etc and so forth or uh they're not enough jobs but mm -hmm. i mean it's taken it from to a great degree to say be mad at somebody because he has a job that you want and then creating a whole mythology a fictitious mythology about the people that you use to scare other white people. Do you follow what I just said? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's a that's a reality that is uh, also a part of the fabric of America, where African Americans were, you know, criminalized and dehumanized to justify uh, the enslavement of African Americans. You know, this whole idea of why, you know. Um, it was okay. It was cool to to enslave them. You had to come up with this narrative that, you know, black people weren't actually real human beings, and so that that whole concept and idea had festered in American society, where you know these are animals. These you know they're violent. You know all kind of reasons to justify this clearly uh, immoral act. You know, and it, then it becomes a part of the broader thinking in American society, and it gets projected onto black people. 
So I, th I think that's what you're talking about in terms of whites who had never met black people. They had these ideas that had been told to them that came from people who were trying to justify the enslavement of black people. It's yeah. still very much alive yeah. here in the city of Chicago uh, it is. In, uh, in the 20th century and still today. Uh, mm -hmm. All right. So what your book does, King David and Boss Daily, uh, aside from dealing with these overall issues that I'm, uh, we've been talking about, uh, gets uh, traces the parallels between the rise and power of Richard J. Daly, uh, the mayor of Chicago, the most powerful man uh in Chicago, and David Barksdale, who is uh, probably a person that most of our listeners, uh, Lance, do not know. They know, I think all my listeners know who Richard J. Daly is, uh, but yeah. they do not know who David Barksdale is. So why don't you uh, uh, educate people uh, with uh, the story of David Barksdale a bit? Take it away. Yeah, yeah. So, so David Barksdale was... Uh, a young man who whose family migrated from uh, the Mississippi Delta to Chicago in roughly uh, 19, I think they came up in 50, uh, 58, 57, 58, they migrated. His father, um, uh, Rainey Barksdale, was a, a sharecropper. Uh, they were sharecropping family and uh, his dad got into some kind of conflict with the um, a, a white guy in town, and uh, it escalated to violence, and his father had to flee. Ended up fleeing north. Had relatives already living in Chicago. Fled up here. Ended up getting a job working, I think, at Ford, and um, basically saved money to um, move his family from off off of the the, the plantation to Chicago. And it was a, the, the the son David. Uh, Barksdale of of the I believe eleven uh, Barksdale children. Eventually, he was unique in the sense that uh, his older brother told me that of all of his brothers and sisters, David uh, was very very um, a tough kid, very um, aggressive, um, was super strong as a as a kid. Did a lot of man kind of work, uh, but he ended up when he migrated to Chicago, ended up um, on the streets because he had a lot of conflict with his dad. His dad was a kind of a tough guy too. And basically got put out at an early age, 13, 14 years old, and uh, just had to make a way for himself and, and, and ended up hanging out with a group of kids living in Inglewood at the time. Um, and they selected him because of his toughness back then to be a gang leader, uh, it was it was about how tough you were, who uh, you know your ability to fight and box, and and so that's the reason that his 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 friends selected him to be the leader of a new group that they started called the Devil's Disciples, and then that group kind of uh, grew and 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 branched into what we call today uh, the Disciple Family, Black Disciple Nation, uh, that has two major factions: the Black Disciples, which were original. Uh, disciples, and then you had another group called Gangster Disciples, and that's the group that was led by Mr. Larry Hoover, who a lot of people know about. So, yes. yeah. And so what story. role, what role yeah. did David Barksdale play uh, in transforming uh, just like a ordinary street gang 
I would say ordinary, but uh, not tremendously powerful uh, street gang uh, into the enterprise that it would uh, become the Black Disciples. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I think I think uh, it wasn't as much about David as 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 much as it was about the historic time and and the era in which he um, ended up in this position as a leader, right? So um, I think the thing that really uh, allowed his 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 gang, the gang that they started off uh, as the devil's disciples. And then remember, this is a time where he's a teenager. So we're talking about the early 60s, around 63. If you recall during that time, there's there's the beginnings of the civil rights movement and the black power movement. But also you have a period of time where the federal government is beginning to uh, place more attention on uh, inner city poverty and this type of thing. So you had kind of like this, these converging forces of a movement, a civil rights movement, black power movement, also federal dollars coming into um, urban renewal areas where uh, uh, churches and small groups were getting money to work with, you know, issues of poverty, young people in the streets, gangs and this type of thing. So as this money is coming, it just so happened that the gangs of those of those uh, at that time being the disciples, vice lords and the, and the Blackstone Rangers, they were the recipients of these dollars. And because you had individuals who had the money uh, through social service agencies, faith organizations, you know, they for the first time are gonna engage this tough group of kids that no one has ever engaged before. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. So a lot of that money found its way into the hands of the gang leaders like David Barksdale, Jeff Fort. Uh, Bull Harrison, Bobby Gore, all of these guys. So these guys were the first uh, ghetto uh, black gang leaders who now had access to money. And so what they were able to do with that money is grow their organizations. And David just happened to be the recipient of a lot of those resources. And that's what helped him grow his organization from a small ragtag group of about 12 to 15 guys to a, 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 a group of guys 10,000 strong. Wow. Uh, and I know what the last time we had a conversation uh, on this general subject uh, regarding a different book you wrote uh, with Natalie Moore, mm -hmm. I remember we focused on the, the, the notion, I think we're talking about Jeff Fort, uh, who is yes. uh, a different gang leader, different gangster. And I remember entertaining with you the notion the man had great organizing skills. Yeah. It's the same question they always said about Meyer Lansky. The man, <laughs> the, the great Jewish gangster, I should take great mm -hmm. out of sense, the powerful Jewish gangster. Mm -hmm. It's like, if he ever put his mind to like legit businesses, he would be one of the wealthiest, most powerful man, uh, quote unquote, legitimate businessman. But any kind of like business venture that Meyer Lansky entered to like a legitimate one, Lance that it involved skimming off of gambling casinos, et cetera, and so forth. He kind of failed at. Yeah. And I remember you and I having a conversation about Jeff Ford, a very similar thing. If you put that mind to work on quote unquote legitimate or legal businesses, he would be a powerful leader in the city of Chicago, like a legit leader, if you know, if you get what I'm saying. Did you, yeah, no. did you did the same feeling about David Barksdale? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think that is the reason that guys like Daly were so uh, afraid of him because they knew his his true potential as a leader. They knew the potential that David had. They knew the potential that Jeff had as leaders of their games, right? So, yeah, they were tough guys uh, in the neighborhood, you know, um, and because of their circumstances, uh, they were willing to challenge authority, which is what were some of the characteristics and qualities that allowed them to be leaders of, of, of these, you know, large groups of, of, of young, tough kids. But understanding their potential, uh, especially during a time where there were these ideals percolating about black power, right? And civil rights and being introduced when you get a gang of 5,000 guys who are now beginning to think about themselves, not just as a gang, but as a political force, then, then the city has to be concerned about that. The leadership of the city had to be concerned about it. And it uses resources. When I say it, I'm talking about the city of Chicago being led by uh, Mayor Richard J. Daly at the time, a former gang member himself said, hey, we need to, we need to cut the head off of, of, off of this snake before it turns into something that we cannot control. All right. Well, let's take the deep dive there and do a little parallel here. Uh, you mentioned Daly. Richard J. Daly, youngsters, not Richard M. Daly. Richard J. Daly was the father who was the mayor from 1955 to uh, 1976. Daly, you know, was the mayor from 89 uh, to 2011. All right. Just so you make that clear. And uh, you mentioned that Daly himself, Richard J. Daly, was a gang member. Talk a little bit about that, Lance. Yeah, so um, Richard J. Daly was uh, the son, only child of a family, Irish family, that lived in the Hamburg, H-A-M-B-U-R-G, uh, parish of Bridgeport, a little small area in Bridgeport, which uh, at the time uh, was a uh, Irish kind of stronghold, right? So he grows up as a kid. And this is the exact time that African-Americans are migrating in droves uh, to Chicago, Bronzeville. So this, this tension and conflict between Bridgeport and Bronzeville, Irish and Black, Richard J. Daly grew up in the, 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 the whole, he was knee deep in the tension and conflict. And so this little Hamburg area, which again, Bridgeport was, it was an area of, you know, working class, poor uh, uh, Irish who were considered the, the lowest of the low among the white ethnic groups. Uh, they call Bridgeport hard scrabble. It was a tough place. And just like any tough place in the inner city, it's going to breed uh, uh, young men who don't have opportunities, form themselves into gangs. And then Bridgeport, Hamburg, there was a group called the Hamburg Athletic Club, right? Uh, and it was, a, you know, just like any other gang. And, and, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, that wasn't a gang. It was an athletic club. Well, you have to understand that the black gangs called themselves athletic clubs as well. They all started off as softball teams and foot, football teams, baseball teams, and they formed into a gang. So the Hamburgs were like that. Um, and, but the difference was, the Hamburgs were 
kind of nurtured and, and groomed by uh, elected officials, the aldermen, the committee men uh, in the um, uh, uh, 11th Ward, and they were kind of shown the ropes, the political ropes. But nevertheless, this Hamburg gang daily rose to be the president of that gang and actually was the president of the Hamburg gang during the time where the 1919 race riots occurred. Now, I want to be real clear. The Hamburg gang, if you if you look at the uh, 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 the archives and the reports written on 1919 race riots where um, the uh, Irish attacked viciously African-Americans that lived in Bronzeville, I think over a week period, almost 50 people were killed. Uh, it was a part of the 1919 Red Summer. When you read the reports, uh, it stated that the Hamburgs were kind of the leaders of these attacks on Blacks. However, it is never, nowhere can we find any record of Richard J. Daly being present. All we know is that he was the president of the gang, but we don't have any evidence that he was actually involved in any violence. I want to I want to make that clear. But, you know, he was the president of of, of a gang that was uh, documented uh, as one of the leading forces in the violence against black people. So, of course, eventually uh, he becomes the mayor of the city of Chicago. And I think one of his purposes was to maintain segregation the same segregation that the Hamburg gang fought for when he was a when he was a kid or a young man, I should say. So um, it's this tension between Daly, former gang member, or I shouldn't say former, but member of the Hamburg gang, uh, who is attempting to maintain segregation. We see that in his policy, and also being hyper kind of vigilant and conscious of David Barksdale and other black gang leaders, knowing that they had the potential to lead and turn into a political force like the Hamburg gang was able to do. And he definitely was, used, he used all of the leverage and resources that he had to make sure that that didn't happen. All right. Uh, and, uh, uh, and and if you, if you if you want to explore this more, read Lance's book and also read uh, uh, Boss uh, by Mike Royko. Uh, in many ways, the two of you cover some of the same material, Lance, and come to the same conclusion, uh, which is we have no record that Daly <laughs> participated in the riots. It's funny. When I read it in your book, I just flashed back to Royko making the same conclusion, but sort of like winking. Like he was the president yeah. of this group that was <laughs> rampaging and rioting, uh, but he saw nothing. He's like Sergeant Schultz uh, from Hogan's Heroes, just to show <laughs> That existed long ago. Only Lance and I are old enough to remember it. All right. Um, now, you pointed out uh, that Daly uh, had this strong, what, opposition, if you will, to uh, black gangsters. I'm calling them gangsters. They're gangsters, yes. okay? Mm -hmm. I, I remember they call them street gangs when, it, when they're black and gangsters when they're Italian, Jewish, or Irish. So let's just call them gangsters, okay? Uh, he has a strong uh, opposition to uh, black gangsters, but he didn't seem to have a strong opposition to white gangsters. Uh, not just true. Irish, but Italian. And I am now going to read a little passage uh, from uh, Lance's book and then Lance, turn it over to you to do a riff. Okay. Okay. Uh, so he's talking, you're talking about, and uh, I've read, by the way, this, 
Lance, again, there are other people that went before Lance that wrote about this. So this is this is not just something that Lance made up, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, and he's documenting all this stuff as well. But um, we talk about mob money. All right. Uh, and Mayor Richard J. Daly's first election uh, in the 1955 mayoral primary, Daly beat Martin Kennelly in the mob controlled first ward and carried the mob's 28th ward handily. The syndicate also appeared to have given Daly substantial financial help in his campaigns. FBI files show that Daly's key connection to organized crime was Thomas Munizo, his childhood friend from the 11th ward who is responsible for getting the votes he needed from the precinct captains to become 11th Ward Committeeman. Munizo, a collector of all the books in the First Ward of Chicago, worked directly under Gus Alex, who controlled the strip clubs in the First Ward. Wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Come on, Lance. To take a little deep dive, explain all this to people. Go ahead. Yeah, so... um what happened there is that the um, the Irish, uh, particularly the Eleventh uh, Ward Irish, had the political. They had the votes. They had the, the 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 numbers to to get people elected. But they really weren't uh, highly funded, right? And so the 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 Italians who lived on the north end of Bridgeport had a stronghold there, had a lot of the, um, you know, they had the, 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 the underground economy, you know, they had the prostitution money coming out of the first war, but they were looking to influence the political landscape. And so what they would do basically is they would provide funding, give money to uh, the Irish elected officials, Davies, in this particular case, and then the 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 reciprocity in this process was you 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 bag and you fund an elected official like a mayor, and then what the mayor does is in return for the gangsters is he calls off the police or he appoints uh, a district commander or a, a, a superintendent of police that is going to be easy on organized crime in the mafia. And that's exactly what Daly did when he when he got the money and got the position, he called off the dogs and let let the mafia do their thing. Right. It was so bad. And it was written. I mean, this wasn't something that was like. Not known when you read the papers of the day, it was always like, hey, look, you know, if you if we elect a Richard J. Daly, the mafia is going to control um, City Hall. That, that was understood and is, is exactly what happened. Um, and so, uh, and, 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 and when Daly was asked about the mafia, he said, well, you know, um, having, having representatives from the mafia who were um, basically uh, influential in his administration, you know, he said, hey, well, you know, everybody needs a representative. That was his response to it. You know, I have to represent everyone in the city, including the mafia, so to speak. So um, that was that was that was the way things were back then. Daly was in the 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 the, the thick of it. Uh, didn't make any kind of uh, apologies for it. Um, 
said it had been that way before him and it would be that way long after he left. And he was right. And so uh, let's uh, hit it head on. Why did he have this deference to uh, white gangsters, but a strong uh, aversion to black gangsters? Um, well, I, I, uh, and, you know, his feelings for, for blacks was, was, was tied to that early period, period that we talked about. You know, Daly was a racist uh, and uh, it was and he made no bones about it. He thought black people needed to you know, he had a problem with black folks being in the city in the first place. Right. And he said, well, you know, they're here now. Can't get rid of them. But you know what? We're going to keep them segregated. We're going to keep them in their neighborhoods and we're going to keep them in their schools and we're going to keep them out of our schools. And we're not going to allow them to live in our neighborhoods. And that's what he he stood on for his whole life. Yeah. And I think about this, Daly's attitudes toward uh, black people, that racism that you just described, which, yeah. as you also pointed out, is like directly linked to attitudes promoted by slave owners. Yeah, think about it. It's just like they promoted this uh, attitude about black people to justify slavery. Richard Daly. Born in the early, what, I think he's born in uh, 1903. I've lost, I can't remember. But either early 20th century or late uh, uh, 19th century. Yeah. Never really met a black person. Adopts that attitude as his own without any, for, for without any logical reason, without any personal reason. It's his guiding light. And rules chicago accordingly lance segregate you talk about this lance william also gets into the segregation of chicago uh and the construction of high-rise uh, housing projects in order to keep black people out of white neighborhoods the design of expressways to cut black neighborhoods off of white from white neighborhoods in your humble opinion having studied this stuff and looking back at it had daily had more what of a benevolent attitude toward black people, not such a uh, strong hatred and fear of them. Would we have be a better city today if he had not fought Martin Luther King when Martin Luther King came to town in 1966? Would we be a better city today? Oh, absolutely. We'd be a much better city and a, and a, and a, a, a less, a lot less violent city. You know, because I think a lot of the violence that's going on in in the city, uh, I don't think I know uh, of the violence that is 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 plaguing our city right now is a direct result of Daly's racist policies of segregation. You know, uh, housing. You mentioned it. Just the whole structure of 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 the city in terms of public housing. Uh, the building of the Dan Ryan Expressway, all of that was predicated on policies rooted in Daly's fear of Black people integrating into white neighborhoods like Bridgeport or Canaryville. Like he literally redirected, rerouted the uh, path of the Dan Ryan Expressway to create a border between Bridgeport, a larger border, 
between Bridgeport and Bronzeville, right? Uh, you could literally see the direction because the, 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 the Dan Bryan Expressway was planned and the initial, uh, the, the planning of the expressway uh, was, uh, began before Daly became mayor. So I think the original planning of the expressway began in the mid forties. He didn't take office until 55, but they didn't start building it until his administration. And so before the building was, the building of the expressway uh, was uh, started, he took the plan that uh, the Dan Bryan Expressway actually is supposed to uh, follow uh, the Halsted Corridor. So if you if you look at where the Dan Ryan Expressway begins at uh, Roosevelt Road, it's close to Halsted. It was supposed to ride Halsted all the way down to 99th Street. But because that would have displaced people in, in Bridgeport, Daly, and if you notice, that expressway takes a dip to the left and goes around Bridgeport into Bronzeville. Uh, and he did that because not, number one, he didn't he didn't want the expressway going through Bridgeport. But those who who uh, planned the, the the expressway knew that it had to go down the Halsted Corridor because whites at the time, let's say they lost their homes to eminent domain to build the expressway, they could have gotten a, a, a fair value for their homes and purchased a home anywhere. But because this was before the end of restrictive covenants in 48, Black people, if you displaced them off of the land, it was nowhere for them to go because they could only live in Bronzeville. Daly said he didn't care. And he ran it through Bronzeville anywhere, anyway. And that pushed a lot of Black people out of their out of their community. So, and then proceeded to build the the uh, Robert Taylor public housing developments right along along the uh, expressway to create a double barrier. So, um, you know, he his whole legacy was one of segregating, isolating black people because of his racist ideology. That was his. That's his legacy, and we're still feeling it today. Wow. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, just to remind you, the citizens, the voters of Chicago uh, elected Mayor Richard J. Daley every chance they could. Uh, he was reelected in 59, 63, 67, 71 and 75. Just let you know. Uh, and then as soon as you had an opportunity, Chicago, you took his son <laughs> and you elected him in 89, 91, 95, 99, 03, 07. You would have elected him in 011, but he finally said, you know what? I'm tired of being the mayor of the city of Chicago. I'll hand it off to Rom. And then you elected Rom. Yeah. So, Lance, do you think Chicago wins uh, are consciously voting for racist when they elect daily, 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 daily? You know what I mean? Do you think they're like, here's Chicago and think about this. Like, yeah, I like these racist ideas. You know what I mean? They, they may not admit it, uh, but do you think they are thinking that somewhere in the back of their minds? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I can't speak to what people feel in their hearts. All we, all we can um, do is look at the result of their actions and what they support and who they support. 
right? And I mean, you 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 stated it well. And, you know, if you repeatedly um, elect and avow clear racist segregationists who fought tooth and nail his whole administration, like anybody that was looking to uh, move uh, integration forward, like he fought Dr. King, like he chased he, I'm meaning Richard J. Daly chased, literally chased Martin Luther King out of this city. Like he ran <laughs> and it didn't take long. It only took a number of months. You know, King came here. Everyone knows that Dr. King uh, actually literally moved to Chicago to get involved with a movement for open housing for black people. He didn't last more than uh, uh, months. Like within within maybe 12, 13 months, Dr. King was out of this city, chased out. Uh, Daly was the Bull Connor of the North. He was just a lot more sophisticated in how he operated, right? And so, uh, and then because Dr. King, remember when Dr. King came, came to Chicago and you talk about plantation politics where you had uh, black elected officials, aldermen, they were known as the silent six, yeah. right? These were six black aldermen who never spoke, never said anything because they were basically puppets on uh, Richard J. Daly's um, uh, plantation, right? They did not support Dr. King. They said they didn't want, I'm talking about these black aldermen, the silent six. They wouldn't support Dr. King. So Dr. King literally had to go get gang members to march with him. And that's where the gangs really became politicized. They they began to see what was going on. So David Barksdale uh, and the disciples, they marched, literally marched with Dr. King uh, for open housing and school reform and those types of things. Uh, and as soon as Dr. King chased, I'm sorry, as soon as Daly chased Dr. King out of the city, the first thing he did was he implemented a new unit within the Chicago Police Department called the GIU, Gang Intelligence Unit, and he unleashed them on the black gang to come and attack and to uh, uh, trump up charges on the black leaders and, 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 and engage in all kinds of forms of police brutality. Uh, and that's what he did from uh, 60, around 67, through the end of his life in 76. Uh, and David Barksdale was the recipient of a lot of that brutality. There is a, uh, I have a, a, a picture in the book of David Barksdale's uh, front teeth knocked out where police came in and brutally beat him, um, mouth bloody. There's a mugshot of him. And uh, he writes a letter, an open letter to the community about how he and some of the disciples were brutalized by the police and how he had had enough and it was going to get to the point where he was going to um, uh, direct his gang to fight against the police and literally actually did that. There is a, uh, I'm not going to get too much into the story because I want people to get the book, but I have a story uh, in there where David leads some of his members to the police station to confront um, the, the the police uh, district in his in the Inglewood area where he lived, and it was an interesting outcome. Yeah, to, say the, to, to, to yeah. say the least. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to give 
too much of the book away because yes. I agree. Yeah. Uh, yes. uh, I, I want people to, to read it. Or as I always say, you know what? Check it out at the library, ladies and gentlemen. You can do, yeah. it, uh, yeah. You'll help Lance Williams out too if you check it out at the library, uh, just if, if you buy it. So, uh, and you'll yeah. educate yourself. So, a little promotion for the library. Uh, yeah. I love libraries so much. All right. Uh, you got into uh, the, the Silent Six. Let's take it a little deeper. Uh, so I already asked you point blank uh, why white people voted for Richard Daly, knowing that this guy was promoting uh, racism and segregation in the city of Chicago. Uh, Richard Daly was also the recipient of many black votes. Uh, in fact, yeah. uh, in, in 1963, things changed a little bit, but he was largely reelected uh, in 63 because of thanks to black votes. Uh, and he had allegiances and alliances with all kinds of uh, black uh, politicians, as you mentioned. So why did black people vote for him? This man is promoting one of the most racist, segregated cities in the world. He's an has affiliation with white gangs. He or gangsters is turning the police loose on black gangsters. So he's law and order when it comes to black gangsters, and he's peace and love when it comes to white gangsters. Why did black people vote for him? So black people voted for Daly because Daly was was very intelligent in how he um, operated his plantation. So he he took a book, uh, a page from the the playbook of Eleventh Ward Democrats, and what what um, the uh, you know we call it patronage politics, where uh, you were um, you used your leverage. Uh, in control of city jobs um, to encourage people to vote for you, right? And so in the Black community, because of the industrial economy was on the decline and a lot of Black men couldn't get jobs in industry anymore, um, daily strategically opened up uh, positions in streets and mainly in streets and saying um, where these elected officials could get residents in their wards jobs working primarily in, in, in streets and sanitation. And uh, it was a trade-off. Like, so as, a, as an alderman, you would get these handful of jobs. And then in return, what you would do is you would fight hard to turn out the vote for Daly. So Black people were voting for Daly because they felt like it was their only opportunity to, to get jobs and uh, to, to have some, some form of, of, of income, right? And became kind of addicted to that, you know, always felt like if they didn't vote, then they would lose those opportunities. They didn't like Daly's policies, but they felt, remember, these are people who, Black people were just getting to Chicago, right? We, you know, 19, 1916, you know, uh, one large group of, of Black people migrate, and then we have another group that comes in the 40s. So these are these are new people. These are people new to the space. They don't, it's, it's almost like we have uh, today where you have uh, immigrants coming in, feeling unsophisticated, they don't understand the lay of the land and easily influenced, right? Um, 
And and I think that's really what happened with African-Americans at the time, just not knowing, fearful, uh, easily intimidated into voting, thinking that if they didn't, that the police, you know, daily would unleash the police on them. And so, you know, it was a, it was it was I, I, I would say literally a lot of black people were terrorized into being daily because they felt like if they didn't, there were going to be some great repercussions. Yeah, and the end of that, uh, at least momentary, uh, Lance, and you and I were both around for this, was, of course, uh, Harold Washington's victory in 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess you could say Jane Byrne in 79 before that, because that's uh, we uh, black voters really first rebelled against the machine, you know, to, uh, yeah. the land yeah. that was running the re-election against Byrne. Uh, and I think she got a rough, at least like high 60s, if not low 70s uh, percent of the vote in the black wards. Uh, and that was an eye opener. And apparently she didn't learn the lesson. <laughs> she doubled down on, on dumb when it came to some of her uh, decisions with school board and the housing board. And then Harold won in 83. Uh, and then, of course, Daly took over and consolidated his power. And the rest is our horrible, horrific history. By the way, it's still very much alive, Lance. I got to tell you, uh, when you were doing that riff, and uh, I was thinking about how when Harold ran in 1983, the forces of the Chicago machine who joined forces with Bernie Epton, the Republican, mm-hmm. said, you will be terrorized, white people, if Harold Washington is elected. There will be crime. He'll put criminals in charge of the police department and your your wives and mothers and daughters will not be safe in the streets of Chicago. That's what they said, Lance. Yep. And I'm thinking back I'm just a few months ago when Brandon Johnson ran for mayor of the city of Chicago in the runoff against Paul Vallis and the rhetoric was not that different. You know, they were like uh, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police said thousands of police officers will uh, quit if Brandon Johnson is elected mayor. And uh, there was that fear, that palpable fear, Lance, that's existed in this city for as long as you've been alive, longer than you've been alive, mm-hmm. over Brandon. And I read in the article today that the, the police are pleasantly surprised because Anthony Driver, who is ahead of the group that's going to pick the next uh, or nominate the candidates to be the next police chief, is like, interviewing the rank and file. It's the same thing when Harold got elected. All these white people are so scared of Harold. He was the best mayor to these white municipal employees and their unions. You got what I'm uh, And then yeah. later, they're like, oh, he wasn't so bad, Ben. <laughs> you know, it's like the fear they put in people's minds, Lance. Do you follow what I'm saying? And then. Yeah. Yeah. We're still living with it. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that ramp, but I couldn't help myself. Uh, all right. How much better off do you think we are in the city right now in terms of all these issues that you raise in terms of the um, connection between mayors and mobsters, the connection between police and mobsters? It's all in Lance Williams book. I don't want to give too much of it away, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the vilification, the demonization of black people to scare white people. Are we a better city today than we were uh, in the 60s or 70s or are many of these themes still alive? Yeah, we're we're not we're in a worse uh, uh, situation by far 
right? Um, and when you say uh, some of these names are still alive, so right now, if you think about what's going on in the city of Chicago, um, during the time of, of David Barksdale um, and the disciples in Inglewood, there were 90,000 African-Americans that lived in Inglewood. Um, there are literally almost less than 20,000 African-Americans left in Inglewood today. I think, it's, I think the population in Inglewood today of African-Americans may be around 22,000. So we, we've lost 70-something thousand African-Americans from Inglewood since David Barksdale's death in uh, 70, I believe he passed at the age of 27. Uh, I think it was 1974. Right. Um, in some areas in Inglewood, young African-American males ages 20 to 29 today have a higher risk of being killed than a active military combatant in Iraq or Afghanistan. So a soldier fighting in that, and I'm not, I'm not talking about uh, just a soldier in general. I'm talking about a, a combatant, uh, a soldier that's in a unit that is actually engaged in, in warfare is less likely to be killed in Iraq than a young African-American male in Inglewood today. That's how bad the situation is. The violence was never as bad back during David Barksdale's day as it is today with, with, with 70,000 people gone. So the, the issue though, is that segregation is so extreme. Like back, back then, the, although the segregation existed in Chicago from forever, the segregation is even worse now than it was then. And so, uh, to answer your question, no, we're, we're worse off. And what that does is that makes the whole city more dangerous, right? That is the reason that you're seeing so much violence and stuff down in the business district downtown, where we're losing uh, 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 high-end um, uh, merchants and uh, uh, top-end stores because the violence is now uh, is so intense in the neighborhoods, in the Black neighborhoods, it's have to flee those neighborhoods to go downtown to have some type of peace. The problem is, you know, uh, they're mixed in with kids who are involved in violence. And so they go downtown too. And it the chaos in the neighborhoods then finds its way downtown. I think if you had a, a, a more integrated city like a New York or LA, you wouldn't have these uh, extreme uh, uh, isolated areas where, where violence festers, you know, and that's the reason that homicides we have a we have a chicago's homicide rate is actually almost four times higher than new york's all right so there's no way this city is better off this city is worse off and it's getting worse and people think that you know you can just gentrify this away no what you're going to do is you're going to end up creating a problem that's so bad that nobody can live in the city in any kind of peace well i'll i'll add one more ingredient uh here get your response to this and so much of your book 
is about tough gangsters. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who are like, if you, if they, if you, they get punched, they're punching you back three times, three right. times as hard. And this is not just, uh, Lance talks not just about black gangsters, but he also has a lot about white gangsters. This book talks about white gangs as well, or white gangsters as well. Uh, the people who uh, our original Mayor Daly uh, was friends with. You, they get punched, they punch you back three times. And one thing I picked up really fast in Chicago, Lance, when I moved here in the 80s, was it's a strong retaliatory culture in this city. Oh, uh, yeah. That yeah. pervades all elements. Yeah. Politicians. Um, Eddie Verdoyle, I'm tough. You hit me, I'll hit you three times. Everybody's so tough in the city of Chicago. Lance, and I say this as a guy who's not tough. I hate fights. I'm the biggest yeah. wuss in the world. All right. I, in high school, I'd be like, oh, you want a quarter? Here's a quarter. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> you know? And so I realized I'm not a tough guy. So I'm, I don't really understand the mentality of toughness, it, but it exists yeah. in Chicago. Everyone's tough yeah, in Chicago. Yes. You know? Man, you hit on a, a very, very, very key point, man. And that is the culture of uh, this, this gangster mentality has permeated um, the broader society, particularly in marginalized black and brown community. Well, I, I can't speak for the brown community, but I can tell you for sure in the black community that that is a major problem. What you just identified, this whole, uh, some people call it toxic masculinity. I don't know if I want to call it that, but we definitely have a problem with retaliation that, Guys feel like if they are aggressed in any kind of way, that it is something it takes away from their humanity, right? Not just their manhood, but their humanity not to retaliate. Like if you don't retaliate for being, you know, uh, aggressed, then you're not human. Just think about that. Not that you're just not, you're, you're wuss, but you are, you're, you're, you're some subhuman being, right? Which drives a lot of the retaliation violence that's going on. Right. Um, so, you know, how you solve that problem, I do not know. I work with that population every day and no one has figured out how to solve it. But I do know that it is a result of the extreme segregation that exists in the city, particularly among poor black people, whether they once lived in the projects, extremely isolated, like the whole concept of the projects high-rise development was the population control to keep poor people kind of concentrated into an area where they don't affect and impact the broader city, right? So that's what Daly wanted. He, he wanted to keep them isolated, right? So when you have a, a, a housing where you, you have thousands, tens of thousands of black families that have intergenerationally been isolated from the rest of society. I remember growing up as a kid in the projects um, after our family moved out and I would go back to visit relatives. Uh, they were afraid to cross State Street. They didn't want to go anywhere. They, they didn't want to leave the building. And so what happens is when you tear that structure down and you scatter people out into the neighborhoods, now you almost have like this 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 kind of mentality 
of us against them. And, and, and it's, it just goes on and on and on. And, 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 and we haven't been able to break that cycle. One person gets killed and it's almost like the Hatfields and McCoy kind of situation where, you know, you have to retaliate. And if you don't, you're less than a human being. But all, all right, of that so again is, is, is birthed out of, out of the hyper segregation, I think. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Now I'm going to close uh, our conversation with a little hope. Okay. I feel free to laugh at me, my naivete. Yeah, okay. I may not be able to help you with that either, Ben. But go ahead. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna. You, we are talking about the retaliatory uh, culture that exists uh, among criminals, among people who, who are violent, uh, who will yeah. kill you. Uh, and, uh, and this goes back. Just don't blame it on black people, ladies and gentlemen. You, you guys love Al Capone in this town, all right? That's uh, right. So just let's just. Be honest, okay? Uh, the last, I'm thinking of you in our lifetime, the mayors that Chicago has elected, Richard M. Daly, uh, Rahm Emanuel, and Lori Lightfoot have very much uh, epitomized political retaliatory culture. Mm-hmm. They very much promoted this sense that they were the boss. That they were the toughest. Rom actually, like, remember the thing with the fish? He, he, he yep. Rom the Godfather. He thought, yes. oh, this is worthy <laughs> of practicing. It's a book and a movie about a freaking gangster. And Rom, like, I'll promote myself as a gangster. And with Daly, you know how many people uh, in the 90s would tell me, Lance, go, you're writing this stuff critical about the mayor. You know, you one day you're going to end up in the lake. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Lance, I'd be like, you voted for this guy. Yeah. So you're telling me just, Ben, for your own good, don't write about it. That's like the mindset of Chicago. And then Lori, if you remember her fight with, like, she goes, with the Italians, I got the biggest dick in Chicago. You know what I mean? It's like, yes. what are you about? Yes. yes. <laughs> and a, well, hoodlum, yes. I'm going to give a little hope. I've known Brandon Johnson for a long time. I haven't talked to him since he's been mayor, but I've me known too. him for a long time. He's got a different vibe. Yes, he does not. He he is a conciliatory person. He listens to what people say. He will respectfully disagree with you. He does not feel compelled to assert his dominance. At least I've never seen that side of him. I've had him on the stage. We do debates uh, with different people. He had debates over like who who you support for president or. And he was respectful. And I'm hoping it starts. It starts at the top. I'm hoping that we have a mayor. And you have to go back to Harold to had a mayor actually listen to people in this city. If you have a mayor who emanates what? I don't know, a little diplomacy, conciliation. It doesn't seem feel compelled to prove that he's or she is the toughest person in the world. It may help deal with. Am I being hopelessly naive, Lance Williams? You know, uh, I, I I have the same feeling and I get the same vibe from Brandon as well, you know, uh, and I'm hopeful. And I'm, the, but the but the issue is this, you know, being a nice guy like Brandon and, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost I can, you know, I don't I wouldn't say I know him personally, but just from my, my uh, brief interactions with him, I really believe he's a nice guy. Um, but you, you know, a nice guy in a gangster city. I just don't know. 
I don't know how, I mean, only time will tell. But, you know, if you look at how things operate in the city, I think it's above and beyond what a mayor, I mean, this is a part of the fabric, as you mentioned, it's a part of the DNA. This is a gangster city. And it's, it's, it's all of our major institutions. Uh, when you talk about the political institutions, um, you talk about the media institutions, you talk about, um, you're talking about the financial institutions. They're all run by the same individual, and that is a gangster. How Brandon is going to navigate the gangster space as a good guy, I don't know. I've never seen it in the streets. I've never seen a good guy. <laughs> um, I've never seen a good guy uh, overcome gangsters. You know, uh, I, I just haven't seen it, but I'm hopeful that maybe it will happen. Um, wow. uh, yeah, but yeah, it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. See, it, you're you're right. And by the way, uh, I I do I cannot uh, really comment with a great deal of certainty about how New York runs or L.A. runs because. I appreciate the sad statement of my life, Lance. All I know is Chicago. <laughs> Yeah. All I know is Chicago. I've lived here since 81. So but when you when you talk about murder rates and they're lower in other cities, I got to feel there's some correlation and I got to feel there's some truthfulness to what you're saying. So, uh, yeah, we'll leave our listeners with that. A nice guy trying to uh, operate in a city run by gangsters. Uh yeah, that's the city you chose to live in, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Chicago. The name of the book is King David and Boss Daily. Uh, the author is Lance Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S. I cannot recommend this book enough. If you want to know about the history of race, if you want to know the history about law and order, if you want to know the history about how we had a self-professed law and order mayor named Richard J. Daly, uh, who was uh, holding hands with the mob while having the cracking down. Uh, on the black gangsters, uh, it's all there. If you want a sense of how we got to where we are right now, it's all there. Lance Williams, thank you very much for taking time to talk to me on my show today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that's Lance Williams. I'm Ben Drowski. I also want to thank producer Chris, who's done an outstanding job. And as I'm sure Lance will agree with me when I say, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at chicagoreader.com. If you're looking for Lance Williams' new book, King David and Boss Daily, it can be found in local bookstores everywhere and on Amazon. 